Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And I need to hit you right now with a ripoff alert. The problems going on with credit card fraud are apparently escalating significantly right now, according to many sources in the industry. And one of the reasons is we're buying things more online than we had been doing. So when you're in a physical store, you're presenting your physical card. Well, today, more and more buying is being done online, which creates a greater hazard for the merchant and for you, because with what's known as card not present, the amount of fraud is certain to rise. And I want to tell you to be very, very mindful that scamsters are after your personal information big time so that they can either apply for accounts as if they're you or more often, because so many people now have put in credit freezes, try to take over the account information for your accounts. So you may have seen just about every bank I can think of and credit union have been posting warnings on their websites and sending warnings in either paper statements or electronic statements to be very aware of fishers or phishing scams where individuals pretend to be with the bank or the credit union and do so either by phone, by email, or by text to get you to disclose personal information you think is from them. One of the great ironies is they will send you often a text message or an email saying that there's a potential fraudulent use of your account and for you to click on a link in the text or an email to verify your account information. What they're doing very cleverly, because many of us get these fraud alerts from our issuers, is they're turning that on its head and predicting the future, because if you click on the link and give up the kind of information they're asking for, you've given them what they need to try to get into your account or use your account and be very, very wary. Remember, if a bank or credit union sends you a text or an email about potential fraudulent activity, usually they're going to ask you to answer yes or no, or on a text, one or two, whatever, with one being yes, two being no, that a particular transaction is one that you recognize. But if anything asks you to verify account information in response to a text or email, don't trust it. Instead, if there's any possibility it could be real, call your bank or credit union at a number that you know to be the right number. Just don't do a Google search because there are a lot of scamsters that will post fake numbers there. You want to be skeptical and careful in protecting your information. Next thing, because so many people have switched 
to electronic statements, we never get around to looking at them. Somebody could be lurking around doing fraudulent activity, uh, attacking our debit card or credit card number, and we don't notice because we're getting electronic statements. I don't like electronic statements for that reason. And so I really like for you to get paper statements. But if you get paper statements, actually look at them when they come in because you only have so much time to handle a dispute. And know that if you've never heard me describe this or you're tired of me saying it, I want to pound it into your head. Use a credit card, not a debit card, because credit cards have a variety of protections that debit cards don't have. When fraudulent activity happens on a debit card, money vanishes from your life that you have to fight to get back from the bank. And there's other issues with debit cards that make them vastly inferior to a credit card. It's time for your questions that you posted for me at Clark.com ask. Producer Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Joe in New Jersey. He says, my daughter's looking to purchase a condo, but her credit score is too low. I was making the payments on her student loans for a long time. She was supposed to take them over, but she missed the first six months, and there lies the problem. Her payments have been on autopilot ever since, and she hasn't missed one. But now she really wants the condo, and she's never had a credit card or any other type of credit. What can she do to rebuild her score, and how long does something like that take? So I'll give you the crummy answer and the more hopeful one. So the missed payments over that long period of time and the number of them is harmful for up to seven years. The greatest harm tends to be in the first 24 months under most scoring models for having missed so many payments. And by the way, I should explain a single missed payment on a bill you have is hurtful to your credit, but a pattern of multiple missed payments is really, really brutal because there's a suspicion that when you miss a series of missed payments that eventually you just won't make your payments at all. So it puts you in a serious penalty box for credit. The right way for your daughter to rebuild is to get a card that um, the most common way people do it is a secured, secured card my preference is that your daughter open an account at a credit union that has a fresh start program that will allow her to have a traditional Visa or MasterCard with a small limit. It will help with the rebuilding. And on those uh, many, many missed payments that, that now are good, they've been made up, time is the greatest healer of that, and it is likely to take a good two-year window before that does heal sufficiently for her to get a, a mortgage. Although an FHA, once her credit score is 620 or above, she should be able to get an FHA loan from a number of FHA lenders. Not all lenders allow you to have one at 620, but many will. And so an FHA loan could be 
in her future. If she doesn't have a Credit Karma dashboard set up yet, she should set that up so it will teach her and guide her what she needs to do to continually improve her score, and she'll be able to see it continually. Joel? Clark Karen in Hawaii says, why aren't electric cars included in your best used car list on your website, Clark? Well, that is uh, the information we have on best used cars comes ultimately principally from Consumer Reports. And the price points of a lot of electric cars didn't make their criteria. And so uh, when electric cars become a bigger and bigger part of the market, and you heard me say when, not if, electric vehicles will have their place right alongside gas vehicles as the best used vehicles to buy. It's just not there yet for electric vehicles. Kim? Susan in Georgia has a scam alert for you, Clark. She says, hi, Clark. My 19-year-old college student daughter listed an item of clothing for sale on a resale site. A buyer contacted her about the item and offered to pay $70 instead of the $25 list price. My daughter was elated. She thought she was getting a really good deal. But then the buyer sent her a cashier's check in the amount of $1,300. The buyer then contacted my daughter, said she had made a mistake, and asked my daughter to refund her the difference electronically. Unfortunately, my daughter did just that. Oh, no! Oh, no! She did. Since she had not waited for the bank to officially clear the check, she did not realize that the check was no good. Now, her bank has penalized her about $85 and threatened to close her account if she can't replace the funds. She's not sure what to do. I know this is a scam. I really just want you to warn your listeners. Oh, man. Oh, by the way, the one thing you said um, about she didn't wait for the check to clear, that would not have mattered. A check will clear typically anyway, and then may not bounce back for four to six weeks. So this is unfortunately an oldie but baddie scam that got your daughter, and there is no way that I'm aware of for her to recover her money from the crooks. This is um, a method of operation that criminals have used for at least a decade now where they troll sites of stuff for sale, offer, uh, even, it can even be the same money as what you're asking for an item, send you a check for more than that, say, oops, it's a mistake, go ahead and deposit it, I trust you to do that, send me back the balance, and then eventually the check bounces and you're out all that difference, and it is just an ugly, ugly, horrible scam that the only defense is knowing it's out there and knowing that it could cost you big time. I'm so sorry. Joel? Clark Nicole in New York says, where do I save for retirement after maxing out my 401k? I'm not eligible for a Roth or an HSA. So are there any other tax strategies I could be missing when it comes to investing more of my money? So there are a couple of things. First, congratulations on making too much to be eligible for a Roth. 
Um, you could do what's known as a backdoor Roth, which requires some work, but it allows you to put money into a obscure thing called a non-deductible IRA, which you can then reclassify as Roth, even when you were not income eligible for a Roth. Um, it does require you jumping through exactly the right hoops to be able to do that. Just do a search backdoor Roth and read how it works, and you'll know how to get that done. If that's more hassle than you want to deal with, then do something really simple with excess money and put it in, as an example, a total stock market index fund that has very favorable tax treatment year to year. And then ultimately, when you do sell it, it does not have to be in retirement, but when you sell eventually, you pay embedded capital gains, which is a generally more favorable tax rate, as a next best step to doing a backdoor Roth. But if you can see your way through the thicket of what you have to do to do the non-deductible IRA and then reclassify it as a Roth, you will be duly rewarded with Roth money that grows tax-free all through the years and is spent tax-free. But even if you want to save more than that, that would take you back again to doing a total stock market index fund or total international stock index fund is an ultra-tax-efficient way to save more. Jeff joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Clark. Can you hear me? I hear you perfectly, Jeff. Okay, yes. In a recent uh, Clark Howard email, the emails that you send out to subscribers, it noted to increase your credit score more quickly to not only pay before the recording or closing date, but the second point is what I have a question on, to pay twice in a month. And I was wondering, what is the reasoning behind the paying twice in a month? Actually, that's fantastic because they're for different purposes. So I'm so glad you're asking so I can clarify. So if you're trying to give your credit score a big boost, you want to pay your credit card bill before they close that month because that will show you with a fantastically low credit utilization rate, which can give a massive boost to your credit score. The other thing is actually paying if you, let's say you're running balances on cards and you're trying to work them down. If you pay half a a payment, so let's say they tell you you need to pay a $100 minimum payment. You know, most people who are in over their heads with credit cards, all they're doing is struggling to make the minimum payment. If instead of paying $100 a month, you pay $50 every two weeks, it will dramatically reduce how long you're in credit card debt. And if you follow the whole string that I explain about that, you'll eliminate your credit card balance in one-fourth the time it would take otherwise. Because the interest on credit cards is calculated daily. So if you make half, basically, of a monthly payment every two weeks, which means over the course of a year you've effectively made 26 half payments, you will end up out of debt much, much faster. Because remember, every day you get a payment to a credit card company sooner, it means there's less interest that will ever be charged on that dollar. 
Does that make sense? It makes um, total sense. But I was thinking, in addition to that, if there's something in their proprietary algorithms that denote someone who's paying more often or larger amounts, let's say more often to stay consistent, would that be reflected even though the person is paying off the card every month? Oh, if, if anything, it would be a positive. Because what the credit card companies fear with people that are running balances is that they end up defaulting. So somebody who's being very aggressive about paying down the debt, they'd rather not pay down aggressively, but they know that they are a much lower risk borrower than somebody who's just paying the absolute minimum each and every month. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. And I want to talk to you about something that affects a third of Americans, third of Americans rent, and then also affects a lot of people that are smaller landlords. So as a landlord, before you rent a place to someone, you want to run some form of background check. And this is an industry that has a ton of players in it that do these background checks. And I've talked at length to people who are, uh, who've become landlords or are landlords and have had a bad experience with a tenant, how to screen better the next time or each time as you're looking for tenants. Well, the problem is the industry is rife with inaccuracies. And there was a just absolutely shocking investigation done by Markup. I also saw a story about this in the New York Times about the terrible, terrible problems with what are known as wildcarding situations. So what wildcarding is, it's an industry term where when, let's say as a landlord, could be a huge institutional landlord that owns thousands or tens of thousands of apartment units also might be doing wildcarding through who they're using for background. So let's say they plug your name into the database and when it comes back with results, it says that you are a criminal or that you got evicted from three different places or whatever. Well, what may have happened is it's gathering the information on anyone of same or similar name to you. And that's what they call in the industry wildcarding. And so you could end up being turned down for an apartment you're trying to lease, or if you're dealing with an individual landlord like me who uses one of these background check outfits for rentals, I may get a report back on you that says something about you that has nothing to do with you. And I was already familiar with this because my wife shows up sometimes in background checks as a man, not a woman, and a man who is currently in prison in the state of Florida. So my wife is not a man, and she's not in prison. So 
it's I mean, it just shows how wildcarding databases can give a picture of somebody that has nothing to do with reality. So a couple of things here. The big commercial landlords generally aren't going to care that the data that they get back is inaccurate. They're just going to say, well, we can't rent to you. But when you're dealing with a small individual landlord and the individual market accounts for a big chunk of rentals available, you let your landlord know if something comes back wrong that it's not you, that it may be somebody of similar name or something like that, but it's not you. And you can provide whatever documentation they require so they know you're not the person who committed this crime or didn't pay this rent in blah, blah, blah place. One of the ways you prove it is, hey, I've never lived there and I can document where I was whenever this supposedly took place. But often, would-be tenants don't know, but know that if mysteriously you're turned down for a rental at a place, it likely is an inaccurate background check. Nobody really seems to be on the beat trying to do something about this. There are a number of lawsuits, but the reality is nobody in government seems to be doing anything about the wild inaccuracies going on from wildcarding. And I just want you to know that it is a real issue and a serious problem where somebody could think really badly of you and it's because of bad data, nothing to do with you. And time to answer your questions, starting with Kim. Who are you asking a question for? This is for Elizabeth from California. She says, hi, and thank you for your show and all the information that you provide. My question is about dash cameras. I'd like to have one in order to protect myself in case of an accident or any possible allegations. What brand would you recommend? And if I was to buy one and my budget was only $40, is that even possible? Oh, yeah. So as far as brand, I couldn't even tell you what brand dash cam I have. I just buy the cheapest one. The one I have right now, I paid $15 for. And I don't know where the price points are in the market right now. So let's look at... So here's Amazon with one for 29 Then the next one's 109 Then one for 44 Then one for 27 49 I mean, really, the difference is in features maybe and in brand name. My recommendation, here's $27.99, buy a really inexpensive one. See if it uh, does the job for you and you will learn what features you'd really like to have that the 20 something dollar one didn't seem to get done. And then you're able to focus much more clearly on what would be one that does everything you'd like. The thing that's happened with the really cheap ones is that the features available on them has gotten much more sophisticated as dash cams have become much more common around the world. And it is a great tool to have if somebody tries to pin blame on you for something that you didn't cause. Joel? 
Clark Tim in California says, I recently started investing in the stock market, minimal amounts at first, so I can learn and understand how it works. However, so there's something I don't understand. After market trading, how does that work? Great question. So you now can trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, with quote unquote markets closed. So there are people continually making a market in the buying and selling of stocks when official trading is not happening. A lot of times somebody will want to sell on bad news, like companies tend to announce their earnings after markets have closed that that stock trades on, and they'll say, ooh, they did terribly the last 90 days. I want out. And there are people out there that will buy from you when the market is closed, but you can buy outside um, of that environment and you don't want to generally sell when the market is closed because remember the people that are buying from you at that point are people that are going to try to make money on your worries. Also, I don't like for you ever to put in an order to buy or sell when the market is closed to be executed when the market first reopens. The initial reopening of the market can be more volatile. So although you can transact 24 hours a day, every day of the year, even Christmas Day, for most of us, overwhelmingly, 99% of us, it's best to only trade during normal market hours. Kim? Sean in Georgia says, I have a problem with the baggage fee that was charged to my daughter. The airline that I purchased the tickets on for her, well, I called them before the trip and they said that they allowed two check bags. But when we got to the airport, we were charged $100 for the second bag. After calling the airline that I booked the tickets with, they explained to me that the policy was different on their partner airline that my daughter actually flew with. But I didn't buy the tickets from the partner, right. so I don't understand why I have to pay this. So you should file a complaint at dot.gov, and it's one of the real problems with code share, where an airline lends its name for reservation purposes. Uh, they they do these things where they where they code share repeatedly where you'll be on a flight on what you think is going to be uh, brand A, and then you end up flying on brand G that has a code-sharing partnership or contract with the airline you bought the ticket on. And in, under these alliances and code shares, the policies are not uniform. It is an anti-consumer kind of thing. There is no excuse for the fact that you would take the time to call and find out the policy and then be out $100. And that's why a complaint at DOT.gov may shake at least, hopefully, a $100 credit for future travel out of that airline that said, yes, you're allowed to check two, and then later, oops, you can check one and pay us an extra $100 
that really stinks. Joel? Clark, Monica in Ohio says the other day you were talking about apps for discounts, like Honey. I do have one that I use quite often called Retail Me Not. Whenever I'm in a store or shopping online, I check that uh, app or website, Retail Me Not, to see if they have any coupons available. More often than not, they do. And it has saved me a ton of money. Just wanted to share. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I have tried Retail Me Not, and uh, there are many competitors. And if you are a big Amazon shopper, you should know about Camel, Camel, Camel that will give you information about historical pricing data. This is a market that's becoming more and more specialized. Kim? David in Florida says, how important is it for a small business owner to register with Dun & Bradstreet? Should I be establishing business credit credit there? And if so, what should I be paying for that? Okay, great question about the DMB mailings that so many small businesses get. Um, I would say you can put those in the circular file until your business is quite large and been established for quite a period of time. You're always going to be expected to do what's called pierce the corporate veil, meaning that any application for credit for your business will ultimately be based on your own individual credit standing and having the DMB rating will not be a meaningful thing for you to worry about, not for a good while. Second, anytime a small business owner is applying for credit, with very few exceptions now, there are some newer ones um, where this does not apply, but historically, you will have to personally guarantee any loan made to your business. And so, again, the DNB rating may eventually become important for your business. But once you got a lot of years behind you and a lot of revenue in that business, that's when that really starts to matter. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ben joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hello, Clark. I'm good. How are you? Great. Thank you. How can I be of service to you as a fellow entrepreneur? So we use a famous company to process all our credit card transactions, and they take a small percentage of each transaction as a fee. And we are considering switching providers for that service. And we had a representative come into our business the other day and present us with a bunch of information on their company. And I was wondering if you had heard of them and if you knew if they were reputable or not and whether it was 
cost effective to switch. To Never heard of them. Tell me what you're paying uh, with who you're with now, card present. Are your, are your transactions usually card present or are they not? Card present? Card I'm present means sure that the that. buyer gives you your card and, and you're running it through a machine with the card in your hand. It is similar to that, but there's actually just an attachment to Oh, no, a, no. So, uh, you're, so the customer presents a physical card to you. It's not yes. phone order or mail order. No. Okay, that is great news because, you know, that's by far the lowest cost part of the business is mm-hmm. when the card is present because the fraud risk is tiny and there are, there are great deals available for processing. So what are you paying right now? With our current provider, we pay 2%. Okay. And do you pay a per transaction fee? Yes, it's per transaction. And once we reach a certain dollar amount, it does 10 cents okay. per transaction on top of it. So the flat two, yeah, 2%. The thing is 2% is just not really that great. What are you looking at mm-hmm. as an alternative? The alternative company does not charge a percentage per transaction. They pass it on to the customer, and then you have to rent their equipment from them. Okay, forget that. Scratch, scratch. Don't do it. Don't do anything like that. Okay. There's okay. Gonna, you're going to upset thinking. your customers. You don't want to get into that. Okay. Are you a member of either of the warehouse club chains? The big ones, Sam's or Costco? We actually had memberships at both, but we've let them lapse, but we we're considering renewing them. All right. So a lot of businesses, even if they don't normally shop at Costco or Sam's, join just mm-hmm. for the merchant processing. Like Costco okay. is 1.22% when the card's present. Mm-hmm. And then $0.12 cents a transaction, I think, is what they are now. Those rates have come down, down, down. Okay. And, you know, because it's Costco, you don't have to worry about them playing games or having any kind of rental ripoff fees or anything like that. Right. Okay. And um, whichever is more convenient for you, check the rates with, uh, I've just told you the Costco ones, it would be good for you to look and see what Sam's is charging right now for processing. But they are becoming really dominant for small business card processing because their deals okay. are so much cheaper than the rest of the industry. Okay, wow. I didn't know that they were involved in that. That's awesome. Yeah, huge businesses for both of them. They'll virtually 100% of the time be cheaper for a situation like yours with the transaction, average transaction you have, and the number of transactions you'd have. The warehouse club processing would almost certainly be the lowest cost you could find in the market. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.